to talk about first, snails or oysters? <laughs> I mean, I like them both, so I, either one's fine with me. I just want to make sure you guys are comfortable with me podcasting with my shirt off for this episode. I thought it was very appropriate. It's contractually obligated. <laughs> so much shirtless Kirk Douglas. <laughs> Those are the bunny shots. That's the real real secret behind this vanity project <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh welcome to the complete uh episode five we're gonna be talking about spartacus today and uh we have a guest here um but first uh, i'll just say hello to uh my co-host travis hello travis how are you hello how's it going matt uh you know it's going all right um martin you are our hello. guest say hello Hi. This is Martin. I'm here to espouse the uh, virtues of corpulence. Yeah. Uh, so this is Martin <laughs> Kessler. Uh, um, why don't you? Uh, I could I could introduce you, but I think you would do a much better job of it. So why don't you tell the uh, the nice people at home a little something about yourself? <laughs> sure. I'm a filmmaker, a podcaster. Also, I'm usually over on Flixwise, where I'm a co-producer, and. Um, I have the new spin-off, uh, Flix West Canada, which has been going pretty strong for this past year. Uh, yeah, that's about it, I guess. Well, I love your show, um, I, but I also love your Twitter account, where uh, you, <laughs> um, you're very prolific, uh, and I, I like your mix of movies. It's kind of like a third all-time classics, a third super obscure movies that most people have never heard of, and then a third movies that are like the movies that I... Uh, love that I thought nobody else loved. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you're my uh, target demographic. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun follow. Uh, I recommend that to uh, to anybody it's, listening. Uh, at Movie Kessler on Twitter. If yeah, people want to check it out. Or, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, uh, we might as well just. Uh, jump into it i mean the first thing i like to ask you're our, you're our second guest so far um and uh the first thing i wanted to ask you was just uh, if you could say a few words about your relationship with kubrick as a director and his movies kind of how you came to kubrick um and how your relationship has evolved as you have um, gone deeper into uh both movie making and cinephilia Sure. I think probably like most people getting into film, it, it doesn't take very long to run into Kubrick's name. Um, I think probably the first one I'd seen was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, my my father, who saw it in Czech Republic, I remember before I'd ever seen it, w would tell me about this film. And the, the word he used to describe the spaceship was almost like amphitheater because it had the, the spinning uh, centrifugal artificial gravity but like the, the picture he created in my head was completely different from when i ended up seeing the film but uh, i really enjoyed that i like science fiction and science so i was mostly a fan of that for a while and then of course later on saw his other films uh paths of glory and the shining and you know delving into his filmography and i think just relationship wise it's sort of one of those things where your, your taste in film kind of bloats and then shrinks the more films you watch so you kind of oh this is the greatest person ever and then you start seeing other films and you can sort of put them a little bit more in context you know so I, I, like i don't necessarily think he's the um the, the patron saint of cinema for me but I, I you know his films i think can be 
I think they're all interesting. Some of them are a little bit frustrating uh, for me. And I, I think maybe particularly this one, I think it's uh, frustrating in an interesting way. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, no, there's a, yeah, it is. It's a, you can feel, you can feel uh, the limitations being put on him, especially after coming off of watching uh, Paz of Glory, where I felt like he becomes more fully emerged into his kind of style that we get familiar with. Mm -hmm. This felt like a, a big, like a weird step back, but there's also so many themes that are running throughout all of his movies that are also in this one, which, you know, tie it to him very clearly so yeah i can i can definitely see that yeah i'm sure it'll come up uh throughout the conversation but i definitely want to get into the idea of whether or not this is kind of quote unquote a stanley kubrick movie um obviously he uh disowned it later in life um and uh even when they were doing the restoration in the early 90s uh declined to have a, a closer hand in the uh, in reinserting the scenes back into um, uh, the film that had been cut previously, um, and uh, I think you know the extent of his uh, participation was kind of watching what they did and giving it the okay, and I think he faxed some instructions over for the uh, for the um, actors' performances uh, when they had to re-record some audio, which is something that will definitely talk about <laughs> for that particular scene um yeah so i i'll just uh you know say s some really quick words about how this movie got made um before we get into it um this is a film that uh was created because kirk douglas uh wanted to play ben-hur and was passed over uh for charlton heston for that role and so he said oh fine i'll just make my own uh sword and sandals epic uh and um so he hired anthony mann for the film um uh, basically he was actually supposedly interested in having kubrick make the movie um initially but uh they wanted kind of a more experienced hollywood director for a movie of this size um, the budget for this film was a hundred million dollars in today's money so it was a significant production um and uh he started out with Anthony Mann on the film and uh, they there's kind of differing accounts of what happened. But at the end of the day, it's the same result, which is that he left. Um, Mann would go on to make El Cid a couple years later, which I think is actually one of the better uh, Sword and Sandals epics. Uh, it's a little later than Sword and Sandals, but um, uh, of this style of movie, I think it's a, a pretty strong one. Um, and Kubrick uh, had written a couple of scripts that never uh, went anywhere in between Paths of Glory and Spartacus. And he was working on One-Eyed Jacks with Marlon Brando at the same time that uh, Douglas was working on um, developing Spartacus. And he got fired from that. And so it just kind of lined up. And uh, so about a week or two into shooting, Kubrick showed up with uh, pretty much everything set in place. So this is uh, a film that is very unique in his catalog uh, because he had pretty much complete control over, uh, at least on the production side, of every movie that he made other than this one. Um, so the first thing before we get into kind of uh, the the elements of the movie itself, uh, 
well, I guess the first thing I'll say, Martin, is if there's anything that you wanted to add uh, to what I just ran down in terms of what the setup of the movie needs to be. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you is just, um, you know, I came to you because I, I really wanted you to be on the show and asked you which Kubrick films you would want to do. Um, and you said Eyes Wide Shut and Spartacus. And um, I was surprised by that because I, I think uh, I didn't expect anybody to kind of come at me with Spartacus as being really an exciting Kubrick movie to talk about. So um, I'm very curious to hear kind of why you were interested in talking about this movie in particular in Kubrick's catalog. Uh, sure. Well, I, I think there's a lot to talk about in the film that just generally doesn't get talked about because it does sort of get brushed aside when you discuss Kubrick's filmography, partly because he disowned it. Like, I, I think one of the first Kubrick books I ever owned uh, completely skipped Spartacus. You know, it went from Paths of Glory to Lolita <laughs> as if it didn't exist. Um, so I think people do tend to sort of ignore it. But then when you look, you know, there are certain Kubrick themes and ideas. It's it's more in the cracks of the film than on the, uh, on the surface. But I, I think it's also an important point in his career where it's, it, you can sort of see him deciding what kind of a filmmaker he doesn't want to be while making it. And um, just what you mentioned about going from One-Eyed Jacks to this, you know, he was in a situation where he had one actor producer going into another and I you know say this from personal experience that that's a miserable situation to be in when the actor is also the producer um, so I, I think in a situation where he was very constrained and didn't have a lot of control it's interesting to see the development of his technique his themes I, I think some of his key themes actually begin in Spartacus and it's things he's either revisited or tried to uh, delve into more deeply in his later films that I, I think is very kind of intriguing. I, I also, I also remember it just being something completely brushed over. Like uh, you did just skip Spartacus cause it was something that Kubrick didn't like. And I think, you know, we're, this is the complete, you know, we like going through everyone's work. And even if so, it's something that they've uh, abandoned halfway through or they've, uh, decided to take their name off the project it's still worth visiting because it's you know this is an important film for stanley kubrick because it's from this moment on that he decides to divorce himself from the american uh studio hollywood system and to make his movies more independently from here on out and so this is a huge you know whether he enjoyed the movie or not or uh, the final product was up to his snuff. Uh, it's an important step for him as a filmmaker um, to have this movie under his belt, and so um, yeah, I'm uh, I I like it, and you know, it's important enough to uh, in the sword and sandal kind of world also because uh, I just I didn't really realize until I watched it this time how little it has to do with Christianity. It barely has any religious aspects at all, and almost all of the uh, Roman epics that I grew up with, with my grandfather, you know, pumping them into me, watching them over and over again, where, you know, they all are around uh, the time of Christianity rising, and uh, which is, I'm sure, why they enjoyed those movies so much. They were very, uh, very Catholic. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's kind of a uh, yeah. Bible epic for uh, secularists. It, it, it has exactly. the sort of feel of a Bible epic. I mean, Spartacus, he's kind of like uh, Moses and Jesus rolled into one. He's let my people go and then dies on the cross. So, yeah. like, it has all the kind of hallmarks of these big Bible epics. But I think that distance from Christianity, that's uh, interesting and, and sort of sets it for a more, sets up a more human uh, political kind of framework to look at the film through rather than uh, telling a story about faith or you know all the kind of regular themes you see in a lot of its uh, contemporary kind of big epic films and I think that's one thing that makes it stand out I mean I think we're going to talk a lot about how it's something of a compromised film but it's also a very very good film I, I think you know you compare it to a lot of the other big epics from around that time you know Antony and Cleopatra or you know those types of films I like I prefer this to Ben-Hur so I think even though you could look at it as a compromised Kubrick film you know you could have potentially had a career as the big Hollywood director studio director and I, I think he would have done very well for himself you know it wasn't necessarily like he was incapable I think he was just uh uninterested in working in that environment it's sort of too too frustrating for an artist but he's good at it actually i i think well i think ultimately what he he could do in that situation was bring his uh technical skill to it which is ultimately kind of all they needed for this movie and the frustrations between uh, him and douglas came out of the fact that he wanted to do more than just provide that technical skill he wanted to actually kind of put his stamp on the movie um mm -hmm. and i don't think that for him it was coming from an egotistical place although he certainly has that in him i think it was more coming from the fact that he really wanted to make a good movie and his view of what a good movie was was not the movie that he ended up with and he's very particular about his uh, opinions about what a good movie constitutes, uh, as you can see from reading any, any interview where he talks about other people's movies. So I think that aspect of it was really where he was never going to be that kind of director. Um, as for the the Christianity stuff, um, it, it's this is it's interesting just in general in the sword and sandal epic uh, kind of category that very few of the movies that are most well known in that genre are literally bible movies you know um mm. i think most people think of ben-hur as a biblical epic but it's actually not it's based on a novel from uh the 1800s that was written in america um and i think that that aspect of it is kind of funny because i think people do you know they think of this as as like a time of uh uh big uh, you know, Ten Commandments is kind of one of the few that is genuinely like that Exodus, which was made at the same time. But like El Cid is not, you know, a biblical epic. Um, and Cleopatra and, and is also not a biblical epic. So that aspect of it is interesting. I do find the, um, the narration at the beginning of this movie to be kind of funny in a way, because it feels a bit like a dig at Christianity. You know, this movie was made, or it, rather it's set uh, a few years before uh, Jesus was born, 
Um, so there, uh, you know, that's why there's no. So like about a century before. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's that's why there's no you know Christi Christianity actual Christianity <laughs> in it. But the yeah. the first kind of words of the movie reference Christianity. But I think it's interesting how they say, you know. Uh, this was the time, you know, in a hundred years, there was going to be Christianity. And then at the end of the narration, they kind of stick it to Christians and, and to American Christians in particular by pointing out that even though Christianity was only a hundred years off, the end of slavery was still 2000 years off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's kind of a funny, like, I think that's one of the kind of subversive elements of this movie and i think it, the the fact that it kind of starts at the beginning with kind of reminding this audience that uh they really only ended slavery very recently <laughs> um makes it kind of a, uh, a a funny little dig uh you know whether that came from from kubrick or from trumbo the uh the screenwriter uh, i'm not sure but uh, i mean i i would suspect it came from trumbo yeah. but like i think kubrick might have taken something away from that you know when you hear the uh, opening narration for barry linden and it has kind of the same dry ironic tone to it yeah well it's funny that, you know we've done five movies now uh and they all start with narration um most of them omniscient narration that you never hear ever again mm -hmm. um so you know it's kind of a a funny little quirk of his catalog i don't think it's intentional but the coincidence of all all five of these movies and three of them starting with narration that just is at the beginning and then that you don't even come back to it ever again is kind of an interesting um concept yeah and i you know the uh and it's funny because uh i think part of that referencing christianity at the beginning of the movie also is kind of like we know who our audience is and we need to draw a few people in by referencing oh, these yeah. things because most of those people are going for that kind of sword and sandal thing. And then, you know, there's even little digs throughout the movie where, you know, the senators are going, hey, let's go sacrifice something real quick. It's like, oh, I don't I didn't think you believed in the gods. I don't. It's for the people. <laughs> you know, I'm just doing this for them. So, you know, it's very tongue in cheek in terms of. Uh, Christianity is the true religion and also at the same time you know we're just senators we're just giving the people what they want which is exactly you know kind of what you do when we're uh, talking about these sword and sandal things with uh, biblical stories you know you're giving the people what they want just so they can keep going but uh yeah uh yeah talking about the uh the narration at the beginning um it was I was reading about almost all of his movies start with this narration and one of the few that he consciously took the narration out he had plans on putting it was 2001 he had a narration in mind for the beginning and he decided to remove it so i find you know the fact that he just continues with his narration theme and then you know even in some of his later movies he has some sort of a voiceover talking throughout or talking at the beginning or talking in points it is very uh it is very interesting that this is something that he embraced, I guess, you know, it's, you know, I always think of opening narrations as something foisted upon a director by the studio to help set things up or tell it, get a story clearer in the minds of the audience. And, uh, the fact that he kind of embraced this as something that he uses is, uh, interesting. Well, I think there's a lot of ways, uh, in this movie that he, kind of teaches people how to watch the movie um and i think 
you know, his camera movements in this film are interesting in comparison to the camera movements in Paths of Glory. Um, there's a lot more kind of tracking characters in Paths of Glory as they're kind of moving through spaces, whether it's the trenches or um, the the palace or uh, the the battle scene. You're kind of following them as you go, kind of keeping them in the same place in the frame as they move. And here, there there's a sort of lack of interest in most of the characters in the scenes where the camera is actually moving. Um, there's a lot of, especially in the gladiator training sequence, this happens a lot in the first third of the movie where there's kind of, you know, pushing and pulling of the camera through action. And then there's uh, kind of sequences where he's panning away from things. Um, and it feels a little bit like in Barry Lyndon, sort of the, the you know, the close-up pull-out to the kind of picturesque, picturesque um, uh, framing. Um, here, it feels like he's kind of showing people that there's this sort of epic frame and that there's more going on outside of the frame or within the frame. There's individual moments that you can pick out. And that's the stuff that I really respond to in this film from Kubrick. I don't really particularly like this movie, um, but I do enjoy watching it um, because of those elements of it. You know, there, there's also it, uh, moments that remind me of Full Metal Jacket in terms of the the depth of um, what's happening. Like sort of, there's, there's scenes going on in the background that are almost totally unrelated mm -hmm. to what's happening in the foreground. Like during the slave revolt, uh, there's a shot that is kind of the the square of the building where the riot is happening. And in outside of the walls, he put uh, a sheep herder with a whole bunch of sheep just roaming on the hill directly outside of it. And it's totally unnecessary to the film, uh, to the story. But the fact that he kind of took the time to do that, I think, is showing kind of the, the grand scale of what is of, of this what's happening um during these moments and i think that kind of you get a better sense visually that th this story is significant than you do from the actual screenplay in the actual screenplay there's not really that much that happens in this movie that's of any interest um because you kind of know <laughs> from the beginning that kirk douglas is not going to succeed you know yeah and, and then like the, all of the senators don't seem particularly concerned with Spartacus. They're much more interested in their own kind of, you know, machinations of power and trying to, you know, set up like they, they seem to be aware that Caesar is right around the corner and that something terrible is going to happen in Rome. Um, much more there's, so there's than... a lot of that, like Titanic, oh, that Picasso will never amount to anything type lines where yeah. you know, they paint <laughs> at the, you know, the end of the Republic, it's just around the corner. But, um, you know, I, I think that's the kind of winking stuff that can be a little bit cloying when you're watching period films. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely plenty of that. Um, although I think the, the deeper flaw of the script here is the kind of the obvious moralizing. Um, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, uh, Trumbull, I, I think, he made it sort of clear that he saw Spartacus as maybe this romanticized leftist figure who was just up against too great an odds to succeed, you know, and it's kind of a, 
not as interesting as maybe what Kubrick proposed. Supposedly he wanted to do something that really delved into why why this particular revolt failed and why revolutions in general fail and maybe explore Spartacus as more a more human and flawed character and maybe I, I think a more interesting character uh, somebody who has to maybe kill people within his own group to prevent uh, a schism between the slaves and you know who maybe has the opportunity to leave and chooses not to to go back and pillage more and I, I think like you know of course it was never made but um, it's sort of intriguing when you look at his proposed Napoleon film this idea of the uh, you know the brilliant uh, military leader who ultimately fails I, I think you can sort of see some of the roots of that in his proposed idea for what Spartacus should be that's uh, you know that's one of that's uh, definitely one of Kubrick's uh, main concerns in all of his films is this concept of men striving for something greater and failing because of either uh, their own not even hubris but just you know because of natural occurrences that happen around them that they're unprepared for just driving them down or even their own hubris thinking that they can uh, control something that they are completely unable to um, but uh, yeah uh, going back to talking about the uh, 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 just the framework and the idea of the uh, the look of the film um, it's uh, I was talking about earlier about kind of like coming off of Paths of Glory into this and you can feel like uh, you know the last movie Paths of Glory the, the camera work was so freeing and so uh, precise and so forward thinking in terms of what the future of, of kind of like how cinema will move forward with how it moves its cameras and this feels like such a stagnated step back into kind of like what Hollywood epics are, are, you know, what our cameras are supposed to see and what they're supposed to look like. And, you know, even even the moments where we can feel a bit of Kubrick tr you know, forcing the camera into a spot where maybe it wouldn't normally be, or even uh, composing for the 70 millimeter frame, like uh, you're talking about putting the sheep outside the frame, outside the walls. Um, you know, he's he's playing with this you know, he finally has the money and the time and the ability to kind of uh, paint uh, in more detail all around and really have all this background stuff happening. Just the fact that, like, when you get into these wide vistas of them uh, moving throughout Italy, uh, making their way towards the borders, and you see just, just the massive amount of extras, uh, the background actors walking for miles and miles away from the camera, you know, <laughs> it's 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 so impressive like uh especially you know now in this digital age you know you just use a program like massive and just uh, have digitally install all these people in the background yet here in this movie you just have uh, tens of you know ten thousand people just like marching around in this giant vista and he's really making good use of this 70 millimeter frame for these kind of things um there was one shot that really impressed me this time when they're going up the mountain and just where the camera's placed you look down from the mountain so that the um, the curvature on the ground kind of goes up so there's no horizon it, it's like they're walking along this big curve it's a very interesting looking shot it's like what, what you see Christopher Nolan trying to do sometimes with the waves in Interstellar or the oh, <laughs> Inception yeah. you know some, something like that but 
you know, he just found that in, in nature and just an interesting way of shooting kind of gave that strange impression. But um, it, I mean, that, that is the sort of thing that you kind of dread whenever you watch one of these historical epics is there's going to be lots of scenes of people walking somewhere, <laughs> and, you know, because it, I'm sure it was difficult and expensive. It's like, oh, OK, like you have to get your money's worth. So you can't just have a scene of 10,000 people for two seconds, uh, you know. Yeah. But um I thought it was interesting too that there were uh, certain photographic techniques, optical techniques. Uh, so you had special effects to make it look like there were more people. Actually, you know, like during the battle scene when you see the Roman legion uh, approaching, you know, there are optical tricks to make it appear as if there's more people. There's several layers and they're blended together uh, optically. So like, you know, you mentioned the, the digital technology, but there is uh, special effects work, which I, I thought was interesting. And it actually looks pretty seamless. You know, you, yeah, you can no, sort of... Yeah, it looks really good. You know, you can kind of tell that there's some differentiation in the... Uh, you know, something about the tone. You can tell, like, there's different film stocks kind of <laughs> at work. Or maybe not different film stocks, but, like, it, it doesn't quite develop totally naturally you can kind of tell there's different layers it's like one like sort of bluish and you know it's it's uh right in between like two two layers of uh soldiers but it's still impressive i think oh yeah when you're stacking film like that because that's probably what they did is they probably just stacked like three or four different uh film uh composites together to uh print one and uh, yeah, once you're trying to penetrate that same amount of light through those four layers, mm -hmm. you're going to start having different colorations. And uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a neat trick and it definitely, it works out well. And especially with the restoration, you can kind of, they do a better job of blending it um, than I have to imagine was originally done. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And then uh, going to talking about how... Uh, it doesn't the film isn't concerning it uh the, the senators aren't concerned with spartacus like it's not like that's their main concern their concern is the senate and it uh you know that's very much how politics are played today too let's use a tragedy to kind of distract from some uh, underhanded things that we can sneak around behind uh, all this media attention that's drawn away from what we're doing and that's kind of like what what's going on there using Spartacus as a reason to kind of make their moves, especially Crassus wanting to become that dictator position to start uh, controlling everything himself. Well, that's a good way to kind of talk about, start talking about the performances here. I mean, I think Laurence Olivier uh, as Crassus um, is kind of a love it or hate it performance, I feel like, because he's so kind of Laurence Olivier-like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he just, you know, I have mixed feelings about him. I think he's great in some movies, but I think kind of by the end, by this point in his career, he was always playing Shakespeare to like thousands of people, no matter what role he took. He feels a little <laughs> like histrionic here. Like he's just so sure. over the top. Um, and I, you know, I love Charles Lawton, so um, you know, just watching him in this movie, I could have watched him forever in this movie. So I was immediately on his side, uh, in the film, even though he's about to hand over power to, a, to his own dictator, um, after the movie ends. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting to see all of those, um, kind of, um, more dignified actors in this movie. It reminds me of 
X-Men and like seeing Ian McKellen and, uh, um, you know, Patrick Stewart, uh, you know, both wearing helmets and like, you know, it's just, it feels, it feels like a little beneath them, but in this kind of like guilty pleasure way. Do you guys feel that at all? Uh, a little. I, I think actually like the, the Crassus character is probably more interesting than, than the performance you know, yeah. there's little things uh, in it that I find very interesting that you kind of see reappearing in Kubrick films, like the, the sort of uh, sexual predatory nature of Crassus, you know, when he's uh, bringing over slave t- Tony Curtis and the discussion about the snails that we alluded to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I like the, the very next scene when he's just talking and talking and then like he turns around and uh, Tony Kirk, Tony Curtis as Antoninus is just gone. Like it's kind of a comic reveal oh, that totally he, goes. He just took off. He's just like, but, uh, uh, I gotta go. Sorry. <laughs> you know, but uh, like that comes up uh, sort of again in in the Kubrick's next film Lolita. It's sort of about the, the sexual predatory nature of uh, these these characters, and then you know to some extent or another, it's kind of in all of his films, and then uh, again prominently in Eyes Wide Shut. So like I, I thought that's kind of interesting because that's I think kind of the first time that really pops up in a Kubrick film you know you can say there's maybe sadistic aspects to some of the characters in the earlier ones but um to specifically frame the sort of sexual power dynamic in that way the relationship between sex and power I think that's one of his consistent themes from here onwards but um I don't I I think you're right Charles Lawton probably gives the the best performance in the film he's he's very glib i i like it a lot you know his women since when are they vices it's very oh yeah enjoyable yeah to watch. and peter ustinov uh, is also great peter in this movie really fantastic he won a uh he won an oscar for it have you seen ashanti that peter ustinov is in uh with uh michael kane and uh beverly johnson no. no i it's uh it's about like i mean it's a 70s film but it was about present day slavery so it was sort oh. of interesting to see him play a slaver in that film too uh but huh. <laughs> uh no he, he's really great actually and you know that character probably makes less sense his sort of flip to the the slave side maybe at the end or you know he becomes more of a good guy yeah well his whole you know, i mean it, the whole sort of performance is a yeah. little hammy like he he kind of rem- sure. reminds me of the uh the cowardly lion from wizard of oz <laughs> <laughs> right. See that. Um, but i think like you know his his the his scenes with charles lawton are just i would watch you know three hours of just them interacting um but i think mm-hmm. you know the other thing about yusinov's performance is that um there is definitely a, an effeminate quality to him, particularly at the beginning um, when he's kind of like, you know, he's got the the umbrella and he's looking at everybody's teeth. Um, how are you guys' teeth, by the way? Are they strong? Should I, Are they healthy? I'd never be a gladiator. My <laughs> teeth are just... What does it say? I'm a, I'm a civilian, even more than most civilians. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that that kind of immediately establishes at the beginning of the movie this homoerotic undercurrent of the film, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that kind of um, peaks in those two moments. You know, one is the, the bath scene that was initially cut from the movie mm-hmm. that I'm sure we'll talk about more. But uh, And then the, the final moment of, between Tony Curtis and... Um, and Kirk Douglas, where he he says, I love "Yeah, you, I love you, Spartacus." But then he adds, 
but you know, like a father, like a father. <laughs> yeah, but like that's and then uh... he like bro hugs him. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I think like it, it's sort of too bad that Snail's scene was cut initially because it does um, create that contrast. Like it does create kind of a love triangle ish thing between Tony Curtis and Spartacus and Crassus, where uh, you know Crassus obviously wants uh, something from him. He wants love from him, and then Tony Curtis is like, no, never, and. You know, the 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 free love of the slaves, and like you can kind of, like you can oh, yeah. kind of frame the uh, Crassus character as sort of the the old Hollywood queer villain trope, you know, and maybe pick that apart. But like, I I just find it kind of compelling that you know there's this big Hollywood film, and it, it's sort of not particularly coded. You know, I think even, I mean that that's probably why it was cut because you watch it in 1960, and I I can't imagine people not picking up on that oh it's yeah explicit no that's know. what i was thinking Maybe. watching it just like is there a different way to read this scene and i can't imagine that there would be it, it because it would be if you if you take out what you know the the subtext of what he's talking about it's the weirdest scene <laughs> of all time oh yeah well the censors originally said you can keep the scene if you change it to uh, artichokes and truffles which is like even like putting that in there makes it even more bizarre it's like what are these standing in for like what what are these symbols uh yeah no that in that love triangle is absolutely right spartacus steals antonitis so uh crassus steals verinia you know tit for tat yeah there's definitely two of those love triangles going on at the same time which makes his kind of bisexuality more interesting um and yeah it's definitely comes out of that sex and power um, or sex and death, you know, depending on kind of uh, what floats your boat more in Kubrick's catalog. Um, that there's there's definitely that undercurrent here that um, that I think is present in the script, but is drawn out even more in the the kind of way the scenes are directed, and um, it it makes the movie kind of have this whole other life beneath uh, the sort of conventional message picture that Kirk Douglas thought he was making. Well, what do you yeah, think of I'd Kirk say... Douglas's performance? Because like, to me, it's like not bad, but it's so clearly like Kirk Douglas playing a movie star, you know, that like it, oh, it yeah. is kind of grating at certain points. And like the, the transformation of, the Spartacus character is kind of weird, actually, like from going to, uh, you know, the, the, this sort of total brute to talking about, ah, the senator will never do this. Like, how do you know about senators? Stop it. You know? <laughs> it, it. It's like a really kind of strange arc. You know, he just kind of, without really much explanation, becomes this oh, great leader and uh, all the fighting's going to stop. And Kirk Douglas, I don't know, he, he plays him not completely like a stoic because you know spartacus does sort of laugh and cry like he's he's sort of a sensitive character actually but he's kind of boring oh he's terribly boring i mean i mean i think the art director painted all the sets with sugar because everyone was (laughs) chewing the scenery in this movie um yeah i think you know and i think that's the that's the the symptom of that type of film is that Mm -hmm. You know, there is no reason why anyone would follow Spartacus. He does nothing in this movie to step out away from the crowd to be someone worth following, you know? Like, even amongst the slaves, it's not like he's the one who threw down his sword and says, no, I refuse to, 
I, I refuse to kill uh, uh, the other slave yeah, the uh, that Strode. I'm forced to fight, yeah. Woody Strode. It's not even that. Woody Strode's the one who throws down the spear and then attacks. And Spartacus is like, yeah, dude, let's do this. <laughs> you know, it's not even like he's the one, he's the impetus for all this. He's he's just kind of like saying, oh, here's an opportunity. He's an opportunist. Yeah, right. This is an opportunity. Let's take advantage of this. I, I do like when they drown the uh, slave trainer in goulash. But, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's sort of weird because, like, I, I think Kubrick had directed him so well in uh, Paths of Glory. Like, I think that's a very good performance. And then here it, it's so kind of clear that, Douglas is the one calling the shots because it's basically Kirk Douglas directing himself, really. Mm. Yeah, I, I almost wonder if that was intentional on the part of Kubrick. It was kind of just, you know, let him give him give him enough rope to hang himself. Like it's like, oh, <laughs> Kirk Douglas is gonna do is gonna be concerned with Kirk Douglas's performance, so I can focus on everything else. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's I I totally agree, Travis. It, like I think it was. You know, it's a certain point when he was talking with the uh, with the the, the pirate, um, uh, you know, doing these negotiations. I was just thinking, like, wait a second, he's now like the leader of this army. We barely saw anything that would imply. There's basically just that one scene in the arena where they're talking about what to do, and he has an idea that people like, um, and that's what make, turns him into the leader. And in fact, he doesn't even. Um, start the rebellion because uh woody shaw was killed he starts it because his girlfriend uh was being sold and you know pulled away and he got angry so it was almost like an accident <laughs> he he didn't really start the, re the the rebellion because he doesn't believe in sa slavery although of course he doesn't believe in slavery but um it, it was it was just this happenstance uh coincidence that that happened in the first place yeah, and there be, there really would be no reason for the even when he gives that impassioned speech after watching the the uh, upper class people having their fight and he stops it because this is wrong and everyone else is like let's go and pillage and he's like let's just get out of here. <laughs> like, it's not even he's like let's free everyone and let's all leave together it's like head held high. He's like no, let's just leave. <laughs> like like every he, they're just following him cuz he's like he's got the best plan to get the hell out of Italy and uh you know even then it fails, you know, horribly but uh yeah, it's it's interesting. I I really do think Kubrick was right in his challenging of this script and wanting to dig into kind of like the other aspects of this story that were more interesting which uh martin uh, mentioned earlier which was this uh, uh watching these people just uh implode once once their power is uh is achieved and watching them how they how how they disassemble and fall apart because i think originally or maybe in another in another uh book around the same subject they talk about how they factions split off from this and some people wanted to just pillage and raid some people wanted to attack rome and spartacus just wanted to get out and like i, I think that would, would be definitely something very interesting to see this power dynamic um go to this uh you know this noble point and then just watch power corrupt and then watch them implode um which probably at the time would have been a more uh, forward thinking and more kind of like uh, interesting take on the sword and sandal epic which I don't think anyone had done at that point I think that's what Kubrick really was wanting to focus on which is the source of him not liking this movie that's the story he wanted to tell that he couldn't 
famously said it had uh, everything going for it except a story, right? <laughs> something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the big issue. Is something about the story just doesn't work, and like it's sort of interesting when you get into uh, Trumbo's notes about the the big Spartacus versus the little Spartacus. With like Trumbo's idea was that it should be about you know a failed mission to end slavery and they're going to end this republic and go to some sort of utopian uh primitive uh, communism and that that's what fails you know in the uh small spartacuses which which was what he was kind of protesting against was this idea that spartacus is just leading a revolt to escape and it, it's more like a big jailbreak but uh, you know i think that the small spartacus think that he was railing against might actually be the more interesting because it, it does sort of address how people react to freedom you know i think of like uh, tarkovsky stalker where you know these people finally get out and they're in the zone where it's completely free and it's scary or i i don't know if you've read uh, the unbearable likeness of being but you know freedom could be really scary when you've mm. been oppressed your whole life and how you react to that and you know things like that i think are worth exploring you know and they're not in this film so that's one of the things that i, I think is sort of frustrating about it oh i totally agree yeah. yeah i mean the 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 there's no good movies pretty much where the protagonist the hero of the film is the least interesting character and i think that's definitely true here he's got no foibles he's got no he barely has any choices ultimately because he has mm -hmm. the revolt sort of thrust upon him it just happens he's like i'm gonna put this guy's face in this soup that's the only choice he makes in this movie um and you know he's forced to attack rome you know he doesn't choose to do that he his only doubts are um hu being humble basically and saying like i'm not good enough for this situation um he, he's, I mean, he's he's clearly, you know, a, intended to be established as a Jesus-like figure in the movie. Um, and that, I think, really hurts any opportunity there is to kind of talk about um, how interesting uh, this revolt could be um, and, and how relevant it would be to modern times. You know, I think there are definitely parallels between this movie and Full Metal Jacket, but this is almost or if Kubrick had had his way, this almost could have been a movie about the Vietnamese side, the North Vietnamese side of the Vietnam War. You know, the question of once you attain power, um, how you maintain your ethics, and in particular, how you maintain your ethics and your moral compass when you have a, a world power coming after you, trying to, uh, to destroy you. Um, and none of that uh, kind of made it into this movie because Kirk Douglas ultimately had the final say over everything. It is. He is. He is a. He is a very uh, uninterested in, in in trying to make himself a white hat hero. Uh, it, he loses all of his kind of the things that would make him a hero. You know, it's not like he sacrifices himself so everyone else can live. Like, he doesn't even do that. He's the last one to be crucified. Which, you know, in terms you could think of it as this is the punishment you that is metered out to you by Rome for leading all these people to believe they could be free, watching them all perish and then you perish. But 
no one has thought of that. It's almost like an accident at the end where he crashes like, I think you're Spartacus. And he's like, sure, (laughs) I guess. And, and, you know, that's it. Like, he's only there because Antonidas is being tortured and punished. And he just happens to be the guy next to him. And then, you know, he just barely remembers him from that one time he met him a long time ago. So it is. It's an it's an interesting thing. He he is just carried along on this. I think the only wise thing he says in the whole movie is, "The best wine is wine from home." I think that's it. <laughs> Although, like that <laughs> Otherwise, ending, than that, um... it's just he's just doing what everyone else is doing. Like, like, I think the ending, like you said, it's almost unintentionally interesting because the film doesn't lean into it at all, but it is sort of provocative, this idea of the, the cost of wanting freedom. And, you know, like, I think there is this sort of idealized notion, like, oh, freedom's worth anything. And, you know, are you going to die on your feet or live on your knees? And, like, it's easy to say that stuff, but to really think about the cost, you know, maybe it's not worth thousands of people dying and you dying just uh because that's what you want or maybe it is you know and i think like you have that moment where um uh, vernia showing spartacus their child and this she's saying oh he's free and the kind of implication is that you know maybe maybe it was all worth it just so this one person could be born free and not a slave although you know the implications that thousands of people had to die for that is horrifying you know yeah. Oh, totally, and then I and, mean, the, and it's not like slavery ended either. No, just no, that one was, <laughs> just and that he was one. given. He was given freedom out of spite. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't win it. He didn't earn it. He just was like, you know, fuck Crassus. Let's give you some freedom. That, yeah, I'm going to teach that I mean, guy a lesson from the uh, Roman perspective, the historical spectu- perspective. Like, you know, you have all these captured slaves. You can't put them back to slave work because you know once you're free, it's hard to except that you know you, these people could cut your throat in your sleep so it was like a huge financial write-off to say we're gonna you know crucify six thousand slaves from here to rome it, it was like a big financial kind of disaster more than anything really that the slave revolts you, you know if you look at the way it was talked about at the time that it was not like a philosophical issue this freedom or slavery it was like ah shit the, the property's spoiled and that no <laughs> so, and that's exactly yeah. what happened in the south um you know, before the Civil War, mm-hmm. I mean, they lost so much capital. The majority, I, I don't know if it's the majority, but there was almost like billions of dollars in today's money invested in the slaves in the South, uh, you know, before the Civil War. And that money just disappeared after uh, the slaves were freed. So that's a real thing. And I mean, I mean, the other thing about the kind of that freedom is everything um, you know, I mean, I think the people, at least in modern history, who have most um, advocated for that were the slave owners of colonial America. <laughs> and <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, like, I, I do think to a certain degree, there is a bit of a sort of racist undercurrent in that argument, or at least an a- anti-slave mm-hmm. uh, or, or pro-slavery undercurrent in that argument. There's an idea that, you know, these people are not uh, rebelling because they do not understand the full beauty of freedom and they have no concept of that. And so therefore it's okay for them to be slaves. You know, they, they're not able because the truth of the matter is if, if, you know, 
they're not going to make, you know, we live next door to New Hampshire where the slogan is live free or die, which was made while slavery was still (laughs) real. So, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to make that argument to slaves. You know, you're not going to say to your slaves, like, Hey, what are you doing? It's, you know, it's more important to, to die on your feet than to live on your knees. You're going to say you're, you're arguing essentially that these people are not, um, you know fully they can't fully conceive of the beauty of freedom and so therefore they deserve uh, to be slaves you know i'm I'm not american but like you know you do kind of run into these strange hypocrisies when you look at american history like you know these beautiful notions oh like everyone's born free we're all we're all free except like not you guys and not not you oh yeah like no you're you're not free we're we're just talking about us it's like wait a minute you know so you have these like sort of interesting founding principles that have these hypocrisies kind of piled onto them so to see an american spartacus coming like this is you know before a civil rights movement right spartacus you know Mm -hmm. like to see that kind of perspective because um i i i think like to maybe address american slavery i don't know if people in 1960 would have been too touchy for that but you know you'd think that by using that historical distance and saying like oh it's about slavery but don't worry it's mostly white people <laughs> you know we can actually make some interesting comment on it but i i don't know if that's really in the film yeah uh, well I, it feels more know, self-congratulatory i think than anything i mean yeah. there, there, uh i should say that the civil rights movement was had been happening for for a decade you know while you know before this okay. this film was shot it, it was though jim crow was still in effect and there was no civil rights act until four years later this was kind of in the middle of it but before it sort of broke nationally once jfk although interestingly enough jfk played a role in this film's success as well by crossing the picket lines right. um related to uh trumbo being listed as um you know, with under his own name and sort of being one of the major elements that broke the blacklist. Um, But uh, yeah, so I mean, this, it was in the public consciousness at this point. But to me, somewhat ironically, considering that this is clearly kind of a left wing message that's being intended to be extolled in the film. um, It feels a little bit like we're above all of this. We're not like Rome. Um, in this movie, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're America. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. We, we, we left, we left England because we're tired of being told what to do and we're going to bring up these slaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which makes it, which, you know, makes, makes me wonder whose decision was it to have Woody Strode be the first one to rebel, yeah. you know, cause that there's, there's symbolism in that. Oh, it's not played out through well. Trumbull's it's notes. Not... It's kind of bizarre, like actually, like what he has to say about Woody Strode. Yeah. Uh, like his uh, notes after the, he saw the rough cut. I don't. It's really weird what his perspective was. Um, yeah. No, he's talking about like, oh, when when you say Ethiopian, you should cut to Woody Strode to make the connection, and like a lot of his his sort of points were really kind of very sort of race specific, but. Uh, kind of weird i i'm not sure what point he was trying to make but i think that rebellion that scene of him sort of turning and throwing the spear is one of the more kind of authentic and intense moments in the movie um you know Mm -hmm. you really feel his death far more than anybody else uh in the film 
And, uh, you know, I think that there's a bit more of a raw emotion there than anywhere else in the movie. I mean, it's a more open act of defiance than really what, what Spartacus does, yeah. which is more about revenge and more uh, it sort of falls into the uh, the revolutionary aspect, like you mentioned. I mean, there there is the kind of the... I, like it does come up in films where you have the, the black characters sort of sacrificing themselves so they'll be yes uh considered like equal with the white characters this sort of racist notion that like I, you could say is maybe woven into the fabric of that um yeah the green mile good and saintly yeah the, the green mile thing where it's like oh like you know you're as you proved you're as good as us by being so much better than you know like, yeah going twice yeah. the twice the sacrifice to prove that you're as uh, equal to the guy doing half the sacrifice uh, well i mean I other than know, killing it's... tony curtis i'm not sure that so that he could be crucified instead i'm not sure that kirk douglas ever really does anything difficult because you know he he doesn't make any sacrifices yeah. i mean all he does is you know he's he kind of stands up for the little guy you know he sees that dude falling down he goes to help him Rome, a roman army guy starts whipping him he bites his ankle and gets sentenced <laughs> right, to death right. and and then after that it's just he's just sucked up into this thing that happens whether he's involved or not you know the other slaves jump in and start taking out roman soldiers and the other slaves are at some point the the gladiators are just as equal in the decision making process as kirk douglas is and I think that's that was one of the, you know, one of the things that, you know, made it kind of interesting and untrue. You had all these, uh, you know, satellite characters around Kirk Douglas who who were, you know, commanders or leaders of these different little groups that he kind of relied on. But, you know, it's basically everyone's just kind of moony eyed over <laughs> over Kirk Douglas with his shirt off. So we're going to just kind of do what he says. And, you know, we're going to we're going to follow his lead, even though. He doesn't. He doesn't do anything, you know. With it bites an ankle and then stabs Tony Curtis at the end of the movie. I don't know if it, it's like a part of making films on that scale that just a lot of rough edges tend to get polished off by being run through that Hollywood machine. Yeah. Like, I, or even not Hollywood necessarily. Like you do see sometimes these uh, young artistic directors brought onto these big projects. Like I thought a little bit of David Lynch going into Dune, which was similarly sort of a, mm. a frustrating experience for him and uh, i think also for most people watching but uh you know i do think of that like what what is it about going into these like big projects where you end up with something that can feel so uninteresting or bland you know it, it's uh you know it happens a lot today with you know these uh talented artistic directors being plopped into a superhero film right. or star wars film all you know as their second feature and you know, like Anthony Mann, you have directors being fired and replaced, and the director becomes less important, I think, when you look at films on that scale. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind, there were four different directors on that movie. Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the these blockbusters have always been producer driven. And I think this film kind of the, the its core flaws were baked in. And, and most of that was... Mm -hmm that it is essentially a vanity project. But I think what makes Kirk Douglas sort of have the successful career that he had was that he did understand that commercial element. Um, and he, 
he knew how to package these ultimately like well-meaning ideals um, and sell them to a mass audience. And in fact, this was the biggest moneymaker for Universal uh, up to this point and was only surpassed the next decade by um, Airport. Um, so, you know, this is, which is another one of those just like, you know, big blockbusters with uh, cast members that just wander onto set. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that uh, this is ultimately, you know, we've, we've kind of been uh, tearing this down to a certain degree, this film, but it, it, it's, I would argue that this is the most important movie in Kubrick's career in terms of not in, not in terms of what's on screen, but in terms of how it figured into his career. You know, this is a guy he made what, you know, I would kind of consider a masterpiece in Paths of Glory um, and was not able to make he, his career kind of stalled after that. He was not able to make another movie. And, and this gave him the commercial success that he needed. Um, and it also, I think, cemented uh, and, and, you know, and this is separate from the things that it did for him to confirm, as as you guys have mentioned what he didn't want to do in film. Um, but I think it also cemented uh, what was already present in his prior movies, which is that uh, Kubrick was remarkably good at putting every single dollar that you spent on the movie onto the screen. You know, you feel, even in The Killing, you feel all $200,000 that were, or $300,000 mm -hmm. that were spent on that movie. And here, I, I you know, you you get all of those things. You're not, it doesn't feel like a wasted opportunity from the perspective of I'm going to pour money into this for a spectacle. It feels like the spectacle that he needed to deliver. And I think that aspect of it gave future bankrollers the um, confidence to, uh, to give him the money that he needed um, you know, to a degree where it really only fell through for him a couple times later in his career. And he was really able to make the movies that he wanted to make. I mean, some directors talk about the one for them, one for me sort of mentality. This is kind of the one big yeah. one for them type film. And it, like you said, it did earn him the clout to be able to do what he wanted. And he had other big commercial successes. And I don't think he was necessarily spurning uh, commercial films, you know, like uh, the shotting certainly I, I think has like commercial appeal or, you know, a lot of his films do, um, but they're, you know, they're not uh, blockbusters, you know, yeah. you know, this is a very Hollywood film. I mean, there's no ceilings in this world because they have the big studio lights and it feels like a big studio picture in every sense of that. Um, and I, I think like it does in some way make it reassuring when you watch, uh, you know, if you're maybe going into watch Space Odyssey for the first time that okay, it's the guy who made Spartacus, he knows what he's doing, he's not jerking me around, this is deliberate. It's somebody who can tell this sort of conventional story in a very conventional way, he's choosing not to, it's not, uh, right. you know, maybe out of... Mm. Uh, pretentious ambition. Yeah. Or pretentious ambition, you know, I think like, it does sort of make you respect his, uh, maybe more avant-garde decisions, or more unusual... Um, choices later in his career knowing that if he really had to like he could go back to something like this uh, you know he could he could do it in a more conventional way he's specifically choosing not to and it's sort of on you to 
say what that means and like i think you know you do compare spartacus um to some of the others and like i it doesn't have the same sort of historical verisimilitude that i I think kubrick wanted but like it does feel a little bit more uh authentic a little bit more raw than than a lot of its contemporaries like i i always think of the moments when uh during the battle spartacus just lops some poor guy's arm off and there's a little blood squirt you know stuff like that uh you know like for its its time like it's very uh exciting and still like i find it very watchable for a film of its of its sort of length and bloat you know like for all its faults that you know it's a three-hour long film that i can just sort of put on and sit through without much trouble it moves along at a good pace and there's always something sort of interesting just around the corner even if you have to watch uh, you know seeing the people talking seeing the people walking you know there's something some interesting shots some interesting little bit of subtext worked into the dialogue you know something's going to keep you hooked you know or even just this time watching i i was noticing more of the um the, the front screen projection shots mm. like oh that's not outside that that's obviously in the studio and it's something they do would take later into a uh, space odyssey and you know, number of his other films, you know, there's the scene of Spartacus and uh, Verinia where they're kind of laying next to one another and you kind of look and you realize, oh, that that's a front screen projection shot. Um, you know, so like, I, I think you can see him sort of perfecting his technique. Like you said, the, the technical aspects, he, he brought skill over from films like Paths of Glory, but I think he was also learning you know this is probably a learning experience for kubrick you know he's taking the you know a little bit of a backseat to uh producer and you know maybe even the writer but at the same time he's using it to refine himself to learn to develop a strong opinion about what he doesn't like or what he likes you know so that when he has more control he can implement that so like i said i I think it's a very important film in his career for that yeah for sure i think that is a like it is a turning point this is the it's almost like he you know he he stepped further into like when he made pass the glory he took a step two three big steps into his career um in terms of his style and his uh motifs and his uh themes that he's going to explore throughout the rest of his career and then this is kind of almost like a a step back, which allows him to reflect on, okay, those were the right decisions in Paths of Glory. That is the way I want to be. That is the the trajectory that I want to move forward to. And I also think this kind of, you know, and it did cement his, uh, his need for wanting to have complete control over everything. You know, having no control really showed how much he likes having control. And it also kind of... Uh, uh, it also helped him understand like just the bloat and waste that can go into a production this size in terms of how to spend the money. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, he, from here on out, he, he does make sure that, you know, every single dollar he spends is, is, is worthwhile and up on the screen and being utilized to its fullest. Cause I'm sure, you know, this is a, the biggest budget he's ever worked with. I mean, he went to, like five times the size of a budget than he's ever, you know, I think all of his previous four, five movies to four movies together still didn't even come close to the budget of this film. And so having that, um, that money behind him and being able to see how it's utilized and where it's best utilized. And I mean, you can still see some, some of, some of his themes are in this movie, 
but they're just not fully developed. They're half baked. Right. They're kind of there, and they're not. You know, he doesn't have the chance to pick up on that one thing he likes and keep pushing it and keep playing with it and keep moving it along because he does have so many pieces that he has to work with here and such a big story, including an actual love story with a character, a woman that speaks. <laughs> yeah, we haven't, so we haven't, we've only kind of briefly referenced the love story here. Um, it takes up a pretty sizable chunk of the movie um, and I just find it, completely unbearable i think it's just (laughs) this is just not interesting or good and to me i just feel like it feels like they all got together they had this scene written and they were like okay this is obviously a terrible scene what is the (laughs) way that we can perform this that will at least make it interesting to people I mean, because there's no other explanation for the maniacal laughter in the scene where they are both talking about being They're free. laughing about how fat he is. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> the, the, Peter wait, are we talking character. about the field scene? The well, scene well, in the field? They're reunited, and she's like, oh, how did you get away? And she's like, oh, I got off the cart, and he was so fat, he couldn't follow me. And that's like, Spartacus <laughs> just loses it laughing, and it's such a weird moment, because up to that point, he's such a serious Well, no, because there, there's like... another moment like that, when they when they first meet after, yeah, no, no, I'm sorry, that's the same moment. Yeah, 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 no, when, they, when they're like talking about being free, they're, how they're both free slaves, they just start laughing hysterically. <laughs> it's so weird. I, it's, I agree. Oh, man. Well, you gotta you gotta understand. This is a relationship built on the fact that uh, Spartacus didn't rape her when he had the chance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was another thing Douglas Trumbo talked about. Like, he's like, "Oh, she'll understand that because he's a slave, his desire is so much greater, and like, she'll be so grateful for him not raping her. He'll she'll fall in love with him." I'm like, "That's so fucked." Yeah, dude, that <laughs> horrible. is so like, <laughs> You hear him like pitch like why this love story should work. I'm like, "Oh my god!" But like, there, there's no reason why she should like him. He's just but like again it's that like base hollywood style storyline that you know is in a lot of these types of films yeah it's really music's so sappy like you know nothing against alex north but like it's so conventional and predictable and like just knowing what kubrick would do with i mean even in his earlier films the soundtracks are always interesting in his later films of course i i wish they had done something i think alex north he also did the the score that was rejected for space odyssey right it was going to have a more conventional score and then yeah he was the placeholder, placeholder music. Music. yeah uh-huh and he decided you know, that like, he liked it so he he kept it um and, and, i wish there was um i don't if somebody had a like a, a version of the film without the soundtrack it'd be interesting to insert music in just to see like i don't like how do you think it would play if there was like music from uh Kachaturian's, uh spartacus ballet you know something like that you know i think could have been really interesting and you know maybe help add some flavor to the film you know yeah add some flavor to I mean, the so many of these types of films have such bland <laughs> scores and it, i think it, the score is indicative of how difficult some of the elements of this movie um are to evaluate today because mm-hmm. that that score has been this type of score has just been run into the ground um yes you know over the over the 
subsequent oh, decades, uh, and so it's it the just kind of score that's like constantly telling you like how to feel. Oh yeah, and and it's like oh this is the sad scene. Like we're playing like oh the the notes going down. You should feel sad. Like don't don't tell me. I know. <laughs> Go away, music. I don't need you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I feel I feel like that's indicative of so many elements of this uh, of this movie. Like the a lot of the dialogue is also telling you how to feel <laughs> at that at sure. particular moment. So like uh, you know, I, I think that the score is a good bridge to the "I am Spartacus" scene, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, mm-hmm. And this is another element of the movie that um, is very difficult to evaluate on its uh, merits because it has been so parodied and riffed on and uh yeah commercialized i mean well uh, not the least of which was by kubrick himself and lolita like one of the first things is uh peter sellers making fun of that that line Mm -hmm. i'm spartacus yeah Yeah. i I mean i it's it's really hard to watch for me like it's it's pretty cringeworthy it feels just you know it's like all the moments in uh hollywood movies where you know everybody's stands up together and it's like the one person does it and then everybody does it and it's supposed to like just move you to tears and it just feels so creaky and awkward to me and Kubrick in fact wanted to cut it from the movie uh which I think is is pretty funny he didn't even want to shoot it and Kirk Douglas was like uh we're shooting this scene <laughs> um, well it's the, the big crying scene spartacus has the single tear in his eye yeah. like that's you know the kirk douglas oh, yeah. moment that's where he gets to show everyone how great an actor he is and how great spartacus is and he's even better for playing spartacus like that that's the big moment and that's the big hard sell emotional moment and i, I think like one thing that's always interesting about kubrick in his later films is how he kind of avoids a lot of those sort of big obvious emotional gesture moments you know he's constantly sort of trying to find the uh the unconventional route to get to the emotion you know and I, like i think he's sort of developed this reputation as being kind of uh emotionally cold which i i don't think is necessarily the case um you know there, there's scenes in a lot of his films that i find very moving it's just that he doesn't take that big grand gesture route to get to them he he finds another uh more interesting more complex way of evoking certain emotions and that's and that's the the pragmatist the realist in him there are there are no grand gestures like this in the real world and that's part of what he's always striving for is this realism this truth it's always these small little things that uh are windows into our emotional states that he that he prefers to dwell in as opposed to these big I am Spartacus moments, which, you know, honestly, having having <laughs> having Kirk Douglas there while all these people are saying I am Spartacus is like being at your own funeral. It's like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wish fulfillment of like, I want to hear yeah. everyone talk about how great I am. And this is just fucking amazing. Uh, you know, if he had died in the battlefield, like which he should have. I mean, the fact that he's like leading this uprising, and he didn't, he didn't die for all this cause. You know, if he died and then everyone did that, I am Spartacus scene, it would have much, much more resonance because these people are still yes. willing to fight for this dream. No, that would have been great. I was just thinking, like in in some of Kubrick's later films, the way he'll like undercut the big gestures, like in uh, Barry Lyndon when Lord Bullingdon shows up and like he's 
making the Barry Lyndon's kid walk in those big shoes and he's trying to go for like the big gesture but then it just turns into a fist fight it's really funny like you know like you, people trying to go for those big gestures in, in real life doesn't doesn't work really but like, I, I think that's such a good point that if spartacus had died in the battle that that scene I, I think would have been much more moving because like it comes across as them not not like trying to protect him but like th there's no point to it at, no at that point you know but no. like if he was dead and you know these people choose to die rather than go back to a life of slavery like that you know that would have been I, I think more moving knowing that it was on them instead of just you know, oh spartacus is there <laughs> so well and also like the fact that tony curtis is the one that stands up first brings back the whole like homoerotic subtext of it it's just sure. like oh like i'm not gonna mm. let my my uh <laughs> My, my as a father yeah exactly <laughs> well by the way like can we talk about how Tur tony curtis was 35 when he made this movie and he's supposed like yeah, he's he... supposed to have this father <laughs> he son looks every really. day of it like that should be like a 16 year old right <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean that's just ridiculous but uh, the other thing about the i am i'm the singer of songs <laughs> <laughs> like the character it seems like it's written to be like somebody who's very kind of delicate yeah. you know like they don't do physical work and, and tony curtis looks like like i wouldn't want to pick a fight with him you know <laughs> oh it's so <laughs> funny yeah but... like when, when he's like oh i want to fight and he's like no no you, your job is singing songs like it should be to somebody who's kind of like like the equivalent of like the kid with the glasses who's skinny you know like it should be <laughs> some some character like that but instead he's he's like yeah you could fight <laughs> oh man um yeah the, the other <laughs> thing about the i am spartacus scene is that um it i think when most people think about this movie they think about that as the last scene in the movie but there's like mm -hmm. 30 minutes more of this movie yeah. after that scene it feels a bit like like a a porn movie that has a money shot, the money shot halfway through, and then the the rest of the movie is just them sitting around talking afterwards. Like I'm not like I feel like the the money shot happens at the beginning of the movie when Crassus gets a spurt on his face. <laughs> oh. That's the money shot in this movie. That's oh, the huge one where he's just like, "Ooh, clunky. I like this. Uh, tying sex and violence right together." In one yeah. but, but you're right that the, the denima it's like way too long. Like I, I think that's sort of characteristic of a lot of these yeah. epics. Where I mean, like it, it would be kind of weird to have like this, you know, big two and a half hours and then like end very suddenly. But like a lot of films. I mean, the one that's sort of notorious for that is, is the Lord of the Rings films, which, like, it kind of makes sense to have, like, an hour-long denouement when you're watching it all as, like, one big log movie. But when you just go and see the, the Return of the King in theaters on its own, it's like, oh, my God, how, <laughs> half of this movie is just the ending. <laughs> it, it has, like, a little bit of that feel where it's like, okay, you know, wrap it up. There's a lot of... Yeah, well, you know, gradually well, tying up the loose ends. Yeah, I'm not interested yeah, at it, all in the Crassus, Verinia romance el no, element it's... i think that's where it really like because at least in i yeah wrapping up the loose ends is okay but i feel like they could cut right from i am spartacus to him uh fighting tony curtis um and it would have mm -hmm. been pretty much the same movie and you know and then then like right and then verinia riding out of town um but yeah i mean it, that's not to say they needed to cut those elements but i just feel like the pacing really slows down in those moments where whereas before that i kind of agree with you that it's actually fair a, a, a movie that holds your interest considering how long it is and those are all structural screenplay things it should have been worked out before 
I mean, that conversation between Crassus and Verinia should have happened before the big fight. So we understand that Crassus is terrified of Spartacus and wants to understand how he can gain this power because that's what Crassus wants, is everyone to follow him. You know, just like they follow Spartacus. He wants to be that character. You know, hence his reason why he wants to possess Verinia, how he, you know, he wants to destroy this guy. That conversation should have happened a long time ago. Uh, Verinia should have been captured a long time ago and brought to Rome, which would also give him motivation for going Mm. to Rome instead of, like, being, like, forced to go to Rome. Like, these are all, like, Mm -hmm. little, like, story structure things that would have made more sense, like, you know, with a revision and a couple more thought, you know, this, you know, that denouement of, like, post I am Spartacus, and then you go into this, like, it's like a ten-minute conversation between Crassus and Verinia in which he's just he's just like wasting time like we're just waiting to get back outside for this uh to see what's happening and uh it's uh yeah it is it's odd it it slogs the movie slogs and then even when he's finally up on that cross Mm -hmm. there's no emotional power there because it's all it's been robbed already in the uh, death scene of antoninus you know antoninus is the is the hope of the future because he's the one who took a chance, ran away, like, you know, he's the big boss's slave, and he runs away, and he gives up everything, his whole, like, singer song and teacher of children to become a warrior, to be able to fight for this idea. Like, he's he's the one that symbolizes the most. I mean, we're and... joking, but that's the real love story. Yes. Yeah, that is. Yeah, he, he is the, yeah, he is the emotional core that they don't give him enough to do or enough time to do it in but his his story is the one that's more emotionally resonant for the whole the whole piece you know it is that love triangle between spartacus and crassus and antonitis and that you know and unfortunately that's you know either whether whether it's because of uh censorship the homoerotic aspects of it that they're scared of pursuing or the fact that you know kirk douglas wants to have a girlfriend in this movie and have it be all about him you know whatever the case may be it's uh it's that section that uh that is the most interesting that isn't uh you know it isn't point you know it isn't uh brought forward enough to uh, make it the it's, emotional it's core bit, uh, it's a little bit funny that cooper was ready to take credit for the script though like because <laughs> trouble was blacklisted they were like oh who are we gonna credit are we gonna make up a name and uh, from what i understand kubrick was like well i'll take credit for it and that yeah. pissed off douglas enough to break the blacklist yeah. that uh, kubrick was ready which like that wasn't the first time either like i know there was uh, some controversy with the script for the killing that kubrick was kind of maybe taking credit for <laughs> oh We're yeah ready to take credit jim thompson for... yeah yeah with so... dialogue by jim thompson <laughs> yeah and then it makes it sting so much more the additional dialogue credit (laughs) yeah well then he uh he's forced to put jim thompson's name on paths of glory and it's an and jim thompson in like sarcastic it could have been in quotes it was so uh it was so just like i'm forced to do this to make up for the last thing it was funny although i think that spartacus might be the last time there was any kind of controversy about that after i i don't know if he had maybe a better working relationship and uh crediting relationship with his writers it seems like it yeah it's it's funny like it i feel like everybody he worked with after this you know because he he had a co-writer on all of his films uh they all uh like wrote a book about their experience working with stanley kubrick <laughs> yeah. i guess it was just uh, it stood out to them so much um 
Yeah, he probably clearly laid the laid the laid the laws down of this is how this is going to be this relationship. Yeah, well, and he wasn't a quick worker too, so it was probably a big chunk of their lives that was eaten up by this, that experience. I mean, I think that it, yeah. it, it it it's definitely interesting how quickly he had to adjust to being on this movie. Um, you know, it it's interesting to wonder even with the same power dynamic, you know, if he had signed on with the same contract and not had final say if he had had a year of pre-production on this or had been uh signed on as the director as the script was being written um if he would have had his way a little bit more um on some of these elements if the movie would be different or if he would have just continued losing those battles i I suspect it would have felt a little bit more like a kubrick film if if he didn't have to hit the ground running you know if he had some mm. hand in originating the the film, you know, either in the writing or at least sort of being able to approve certain things or getting ideas beforehand of how to maybe circumvent some of the uh, producerial writer uh, opinions, you know, I, I think like it could have, but you know, like we already mentioned, he he was coming in to replace. Um, Anthony Mann so like it, it was I, I think a situation where he just kind of had to make the best of it yeah and sort of accept that you know I, even though I, he clearly had opinions about how it should be rewritten and how it could be made uh, much more compelling I, I think he probably just had to accept that you know not not this time <laughs> well so then that gets to the question I guess uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast which is um whether or not you guys feel like this is a, a Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, I, I think based on our conversation, we, we all kind of agree that there is at least some of his stamp here and it should be kind of considered within his canon. But I guess I'm wondering if you guys feel like it should stand on the same level uh, in terms of informing his overall filmography uh, as the rest of his movies or if it becomes more of a historical curiosity within uh, his movies. Although it's definitely lesser. It's, you know, with the same sort of interest that I'd watch uh, Killer's Kiss, you know, or a student film, it has that kind of degree of relevance to the rest of his body of work for me. Like, uh, I mean, even in Killer's Kiss, there's the uh, the sort of almost gladiator-style fight. It, it looks very similar at the end with the... Uh, um, the, the two men fighting with all uh, surrounded by the mannequins in killer's kiss that that looks almost like something in spartacus but it's um you know it, it's enough there that i think it's kind of key in his development that you know i i would really hesitate in saying like it, it's important to his body of work although you know his name is kind of the the third one that comes to the uh the mind when you discuss spartacus after kirk douglas and dalton trembo so like i, I think it's uh, I, I think it's relevant and important and worth taking a look at and discussing, even if it's not uh, a major work or a work that's, you know, fully reflective of Kubrick's artistic ability and intent. Yeah, I think, you know, as a standalone film, I don't feel it is a, a fully Kubrickian product, but it is an important film in his complete career, because without this. Uh, you know, you could call it a misstep or or even a, a failure in terms of his personal growth. 
um, you know, without this failure, he doesn't take a bigger step forward into having more control and more uh, influence on all of his projects from here on out. Um, you know, I, and I do think it covers, uh, the film does, I mean, I could see why he would be interested, you know, even as a work for hire, you get called and say, hey, you want to direct this? There are things in here that I think definitely uh, excited him and follow into his themes, because otherwise he would have just said no. Like, you know, if this was just completely out of his wheelhouse of interests, he might have just said, nah, you know, this isn't something, because, you know, you do have his... His class, his class and power struggles, just like in his other films. There is an upper class and a lower class, and then how these upper class treat the lower class is, uh, you know, systemic of, you know, all the problems that we face in humanity that people think they're better than others and then oppress them. So we still have that with the, the Romans and the uh, slaves. We still have his death is better than pain there's another one of those speeches in this movie in which they're talking about you know are you scared he said well i'm not scared because all slaves know is pain and death is actually something easier it's easier to die than to be in pain which uh reflects the speech that we had in paths of glory as well and it definitely it definitely falls well within uh Kubrick's triangle of interest which we touched on earlier which is power and sex and death those those three elements are in all of his films uh a little less in 2001 but there's the power and death and sex triangle that he's always uh front and center interested in in the dynamics between them so i think i think this is definitely a kubrick film it's not it is like martin just said you know you don't think of his name right away when you think of this movie you think kirk douglas then you think dalton trumbo you think about the blacklist you think about the history uh and what it meant to make this film and to do it this way but kubrick is usually an afterthought in terms of oh yeah and this is a kubrick film because Mm -hmm. he's he is not front and center of this movie he is deep in the background like one of his sheep herders like if you ask somebody, oh, you know, want to talk about like some of the great actors that Kubrick worked with, I think it's going to be a long time before they remember that he worked with Tony Curtis, you know, like it, yeah. it, it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like he made a movie with Charles Lawton in it. Like it feels a little bit like that. And like one thing we didn't mention is that Kirk Douglas had him on contract to do another film after Spartacus and he uh, Kubrick got out of that contract. And from Douglas's point of view, he was trying to help this up-and-coming director who he thought was great and you know from his perspective Kubrick was being really ungrateful but you know you can see why he wanted to to get out of that I, I think that's where the the quote came from that of uh, Douglas calling Kubrick a talented little shit uh, so. yeah. I connected with uh, a point each from you guys I mean I think the student film comparison is a good comparison in terms of uh, how the experience of making it informed the rest of his career is more interesting than what's actually up there on screen. And I also uh, really like the idea that this is in some ways a more surface level representation of the deeper themes that he explores in other movies, you know, and the, the power dynamic in particular is something that is not particularly interesting in this movie in any way. Um, I don't think you really learn much or engage much with that element of the movie. And yet it is very present and is almost kind of the overarching theme of this movie. Um, and 
I think comparing this to the rest of his films sort of deepens the uh, the exploration of those themes in uh, his other movies, because you can see kind of uh, not only how other people deal with that theme, but how he dealt with this theme in a commercial context that was uh, a situation that he was unable to put his autorial stamp on. Um, so I think that aspect of it makes it interesting. I think, though, ultimately, if you you know, let's say you're writing a retrospective of Kubrick's films, or you're talking about his, uh, you're talking about a specific element of his filmography, and you want to reference uh, all of his movies or some of his movies to make a point. I think this one always comes with that asterisk of, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's this element, which ties into things from the other movies. But keep in mind, you know, this is not the same thing as those other movies. It's it's a different kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I think that's okay. You know, I mean, I think it, it still makes it, um, you know, a valuable film. I think more valuable and certainly more entertaining than Fear and Desire, but um, in a similar mm -hmm. regard. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the other thing worth mentioning is we're all re referencing this film and this is where i mean i assume we're all talking because we talked about the scenes of the snails and the uh oysters <laughs> we're all talking about the restored version right like for years right. until the 1990s like a lot of these uh the homoerotic elements uh, the violent elements like these are all things that were excised from the original Jeez, cut of the film. It must have been boring before that. <laughs> oh, it must have been, it must have been, there must have been even less sense into it. You know, I've never even seen the other one. I've only ever yeah, seen the too. restored version. So yeah. I, uh, I wonder about that. And, you know, just those elements that they cut out, which are the things that make it interesting for us. You know, we, we talked about quite a bit about this love triangle and stuff like that. That scene where he, the hug at the end of the film where he's holding him in his hands and he says, I love you. Uh, some of that was trimmed out huh. and it was less, less, you know, not a, not a declaration of love so much. And then also, you know, that one scene of the uh, oysters and the snails, which is funny because they lost, I, I'm sure you guys have all the read audio this. Track, yeah. Ever, <laughs> yeah. The audio track was missing. So they got Tony Curtis back in to do his and Olivier was already passed away at this point, so they got uh, Anthony Hopkins to come in and do Olivier impersonation for that scene. Yeah, you can tell it's Hopkins when you when you listen. Oh like, yeah! All of a sudden, it's just like oh, like I'm I'm listening to Westworld or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you you know he ate his snails and oysters with a nice Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Martin, um, on this show. Uh, um, we are going through the filmography, obviously in chronological order, and we are uh, ranking these movies within Kubrick's filmography. Right. So, um, we'll, we'll, we're going to let you play along as well, since uh, since you haven't <laughs> okay. done it uh, yet at this point. And you can you can speak to the entire filmography, but we're just going from this point uh, in the um, in you know in his career. Uh, Travis, I think up to this point, both of us have considered each film he has made as his best film up to that point right um so but I, I i'm i'm pretty confident that both of us are not going are going to break that trend uh, at this point but travis where where would you oh, yes. slot um spartacus into your uh, rankings at this point all right 
So Spartacus is taking two steps back, just like how I thought Kubrick did in terms of his style. So we got Fear and Desire being the lowest ranked. Killer's Kiss, Spartacus, The Killing, then Paths of Glory, so far as my ranking. Okay, so uh, I am uh, I am going to go lower than that. And oh. uh, I still like this movie. I think it has a lot going for it. But the reason that I'm ranking it a slot below uh, Killer's Kiss, um, still far, far and away better than Fear and Desire, but uh, the reason I'm ranking it below Killer's Kiss is because I would rather watch Killer's Kiss three times than watch this movie <laughs> once. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was the only reason why I put it above it, because I actually... Like Martin was saying, you could throw this on and it just breezes through, and it was you know entertaining and fun. Yeah. And Ki- Killer's Kiss, I feel like I have to pay attention a little bit. And this movie, I can just woo, just washes yeah. over me. Yeah, it's a good background movie. I'll I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, so Martin, where where do you feel like Spartacus fits into uh, Kubrick's catalog? I assume you've seen all of his okay. films at this yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, so it's Paths of Glory is the best uh, at this point where you are. Uh, then the killing, and uh, I I like Spartacus a little more than Killer's Kiss. I I put it above Killer's Kiss, then Killer's Kiss, then Fear and Desire. And where in terms of you know you you can move forward as well. Oh, so okay. where where would you you know above and or below any of the other particular movies? Sure. Um... I'm trying to think if there's any what any what of is your, later uh, ones I'd put it above. Yeah, I mean, what just I'm curious what you would cite as your favorite Kubrick film. Um, I, it kind of depends what movie you're, mood you're in because they sort of appeal to different. You know, like on the right day it's Doctor Strange Love, on another day it's Paths of Glory. Yeah. Sometimes it's Space Odyssey, sometimes it's The Shining. Um, for, it's not usually uh, um, Full Metal Jacket for me or. Barry Lyndon, but you know those are great films anyway. Um, yeah, I, I think like all of his later films, I'd put above. Yeah, Spartacus. There, there's none I'd put below. I might put. Uh, I might put Paths of Glory above some of the later ones. Yeah, maybe even The Killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might. I don't know. I'd have to watch them sort of back to back. But it, it's hard to compare something like The Killing with Full Metal Jacket or Eyes Wide Shut. Like, how do you even? Uh, compare you know oh, they yeah, feel like yeah. they're from two different eras i mean even even full metal jacket versus paths of glory which are probably the right. most similar films that he made in terms of genre just pure genre are entirely different movies you right know, sort of addressing entirely different things about war um so yeah i mean it, it's it, it's definitely it's definitely tough going here, but we'll 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 get there eventually, um, and we will be watching them back to back to a certain degree. So uh, so it will be interesting, it's be to, interesting see. to see yeah. what you'll observe and yeah, for what, sure what, uh, comparisons you'll make. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, this was uh, this was a lot of fun, Martin. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, and talking Spartacus yeah, with us. It was fun talking to you, buddy. Thank you for having me on. This I really enjoyed this. Um, and so. Uh, in uh, in a few weeks, we're going to be uh, addressing Kubrick's next film, which is uh, Lolita, probably his most um, the, his film that uh, is adapted from the most famous source uh, of any of his films. Um, Travis, uh, are you excited about Lolita? What do you think? 
I don't know. Can it? Can I really say I'm excited <laughs> about Lolita without sounding like a creeper? I'm excited about this movie as I shake, holding a cigarette in my hand, like, oh yeah. No, uh, <laughs> I'm interested. This is. Uh, I will. I will preface. As of now, in my mental history of uh, Kubrick's films, this is one of my lower ranking Kubrick films. I've never really connected with this movie, so I'm very interested in revisiting it and seeing if, uh, over time, my uh, my thoughts on predatory sexual uh, uh, <laughs> comedy has uh, changed at all. Yeah, I haven't uh, watched this movie since I was a teenager, actually. So it's been quite a while. Um, so I'll be curious to see how I respond as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it should be fun. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and we may have a guest. We will, yeah. Well. Who's, uh, Lolita is their favorite book. So that should be interesting as well. Oh. Um, all right. It's a sting. Maybe. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> It's an intervention. To catch a predator. <laughs> Take a seat. <laughs>